I, I hope you guys enjoyed that nice, soft, peaceful song which I just played right now. So it's a pretty cool track. I specifically play uh, for shows related to children, social skills in general, stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. So I want to welcome you all to the Brand Identity Design Podcast. My name is Jason. I am a brand identity designer myself, not your average designer which you see on Fiverr. <laughs> somebody's uh, quite different and i'm here actually today uh, doing my podcast it's we currently do a series called as the dark side of entrepreneurship and uh, while i do these episodes social skills for children is a very integral and a very important topic for me uh, because i also had like a, a troublesome childhood so this helps me to reflect back on some of those things i could have actually done uh, to make my life better so this is a way how i learn and i i hope by you know by interviewing people who are in the same field like uh, a child psychologist such as dr dinette king uh, by having such guests on my show it really helps uh, you to get in depth information about our conversation so today's topic uh, just in case uh, if you're wondering today's topic is adverse childhood experience uh, people call it as aces as well short form and uh, during this episode dr king will discuss different type of aces how it is linked to various mental health conditions mental disorders we will try to deep dive as much as possible i want you to be very practical guys on a 90 minute show is next to impossible to cover everything so uh, we would expect have to have more future episodes starting from january next year uh, specifically with dr king and we will try to deep dive and go further 
Okay, so so the first 30 to 40 minutes of the show, it will be just a one-on-one conversation between me and my guests. If you do have questions, please hold on to those questions. And we will start Q&A after 40 to 45 minutes. And you're welcome to come up, raise your hand, uh, either on Clubhouse or LinkedIn, and we should be able to assist you clarifying those doubts and questions. When you are on stage, you know, let's be respectful uh, to my guest and her time. So try to be as brief as possible with your question. The more simpler it is, the more easier uh, you will get the answer. So on that note, I want to quickly give uh, an introduction to Dr. King. So, so this is her bio. So after working for nearly a decade as a K-12 uh, school, on, on a K-12 school guidance counselor, so people who are actually from uh, geographically from India probably may not know this, but K-12 means kindergarten to uh, 12th. That's what it means. I came to know yesterday when we were doing audio testing. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. King, for clarifying that. And uh, so Dr. B- uh, Dr. King began her career as a clinical psychology. Her love for education, mental health, social justice, work, and motherhood has allowed her to provide services to hundreds of children within the past 17 years and Dr. King utilizes her intergenerational trauma-informed approach to child psychology as family system uh, are the fertile ground for child development. At the core of her clinical practice is the belief that assuming a posture of curiosity about a child's challenging behavior is much more effective than solely focusing on elimination of the symptoms as curiosity honors uh, the humanity of the client and their narrative. So this is about Dr. King. If you would like to get more information, please click her on picture on, on if you're on LinkedIn and you should be able to see her LinkedIn profile, some of her accomplishment, previous accomplishment, things which she has done, stuff like that. So so Dr. King, welcome uh, to the Brand Identity Design Podcast. And children, let's make some noise. Let's make <laughs> some noise uh, for Dr. King. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so they're not actual children, guys. It's just a sound effect. <laughs> so. That was very sweet. I love that. Thank you, Jason. You're welcome. So, so let's actually, you know, deep dive into this discussion. Uh, I want to first understand what inspired you to get into clinical psychology in the first place, you know, because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of time you have to spend uh, to become a psychologist and why narrow down to that extent? Is there something which influenced your childhood? Uh, was there a parent, uh, a situation, circumstance? I just want to understand, like, you know, what inspired you to move into this direction? Sure. Thank you. That's a great question. Jason, before I get um, delve deeply into that question, um, I just want to do a disclaimer and say that I have no financial arrangements or affiliations with any entities I'm going to mention today. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose, and the information we're going to be talking about today is not meant to replace professional services, but it's just intended to facilitate a conversation about mental health considering young children. Um, But to get to your question, uh, I've always loved working with children. I loved working with kids when I was a kid. I remember my mom telling me as young as fourth grade that one day I would make a great uh, clinical psychologist. Um, I've literally literally been working with you since I was in high school. So after working with children um, as an educator for nearly 10 years, it became quite apparent to me that there were a lot of children who were in a great amount of pain. Um, and in the school systems, um, 
you know, the primary goal is to educate, um, but, you know, it's hard to educate and help children gain access to the curriculum when they're suffering psychologically or emotionally. So I began to see this trend of more and more young people struggling with depression, anxiety, um, self-injurious behaviors like cutting, um, even suicidality, and began to have to work with the pet team um, a lot more than I did when I first entered the field of education um, and participating in things like hospitalizations of children and things like that. And so I felt like I could help more children if I entered the field of clinical psychology. Um, teachers and school staff deal with a lot, um, honestly, more than I, I think that they should. Um, I love teachers and I commend them. Uh, it's, it's really a work of an important work. Um, but now I'm happy to be in a position to help facilitate deeper inner healing while also supporting educators um, via consultation services and my volunteer work and having platforms like this to just kind of talk about um, the things that so many young people are dealing with. So for me, psychology just opened up more doors to serve more people and access more children. Thank you, Doctor, for giving us that backstory. It kind of makes sense that why you leaned on to that direction and why you felt, you know, this is where your calling is. So I, I really appreciate you sharing this, uh, you know, information about what really happened in the past and how things shaped and helped you in the long run. So thank you. So, uh, yeah, before we actually get into ACEs, I want to actually understand what is the kind of impact early adversity you know, has on a child's development. You know, if you can give us an overview first, we want to get an overview first before we get into the topic as ACE as, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, basically early adverse or overwhelmingly scary experiences that we um, consider to be traumatic for young children because their brains are still developing, their systems are still developing. Um, basically anything like abuse or, you know, some of the things we're gonna talk about later it overwhelms children's systems at a time where it's critical for them developmentally. Um, when we're born, we're born with 100 billion brain cells and there's a lot of um, brain development that's going on. For example, for the first year of life, 60% of nutrition is used by the brain just because of, there's so much um, neuroactivity um, that occurs in the early years of life. And so early experiences help wire an infant's brain. And I'm talking in utero, I'm talking immediately after childbirth and and on through, you know, the rest of their lives. But I think the it's an important conversation to have in terms of early adversity on child's development or children development, a children a child's development because of the vulnerabilities that they have that adults don't have. And so when children are exposed to these early adverse experiences, it impacts their developmental trajectory in ways that are far reaching. And so it can affect their social skills later on, it can, it can affect them cognitively, it can affect their mental health, it can literally affect the, the natural and healthy development of various systems in the body. So that's why I think this is an important topic. Yeah, it is absolutely. It, it is, it is, definitely. So, so it, it, on that note, because I understand and I acknowledge the fact that the future of any society, it depends on your ability to foster health and well-being uh, of the mm -hmm. next generation, right? Uh, today's children will be tomorrow's citizen, workers, parents, so on and so forth. Okay, so, so let's actually get into the core concept of child development. What are some mm -hmm. of the core concepts which helps to, 
you know distill and have all these things and help a child develop social skills and you know everything which you just said as a whole mm-hmm. i think um i think it's best framed by abraham maslow's hierarchy of needs um and so basically according to maslow's hierarchy of needs there are five basic needs that every person needs to um experience healthy development so it's phys- your physiological needs need to be met. So like water, um, sleep, having safe shelter, having clothing, having food. These are things that are basic necessities for human development. Um, But the next uh, layer of his hierarchy of needs is safety. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about today is when a child's safety is compromised by the things that are happening in their environment. So for children, they need to feel uh, stable. They need to feel that their interactions with their caregivers are predictable, that they are free from fear, um, that they're just like limits, healthy limits and order in the home or in their environment, including school, that creates an over, overall um, sense of safety. And then there's their social needs, um, the giving and receiving affection, intimacy, friendship, feeling love, feeling like you belong to something. And I think um, this is something that the pandemic has really highlighted in terms of the mental health outcomes of the pandemic, specifically for teenagers, when children and teenagers um, have been deprived of these social needs being met due to the closures during the pandemic, we see the mental health outcomes in in, in the form of increased anxiety, depression, and, and at, in some worst cases, suicidality. Um, and then esteem is important, just feeling like you are love, feeling like you have value, feeling that um, those around you regard you positively and that you have some sense of mastery and an ability to independently explore your environment as, um, but at the same time, feel safe and like you're, the caregivers and adults around you are making sure that you're safe, but that you have this um, ability to explore your environment because that's how children learn. They learn by just interacting with their environment. And then um, later in life, uh, just feeling like you have the ability to grow and uh, beauty and and you have the ability to have a balance between healthy work and play um, environments, like just striking that balance between work-life harmony. So I guess basically um, physiological needs, safety needs, socialization, esteem needs and feeling like you are fulfilled and have some some sense of fulfillment in life is is basically what he proposes that that is super cool uh you know that was really tight jam-packed information which you just shared and i was just writing my notes (laughs) kind of went to the edge of the page like you know so I, I appreciate you sharing all this wealth of knowledge, uh, guys. You know, just guys. You know, I understand that. You know, it's a lot of stuff which Dr. King is actually saying and sharing with us on this live show. Please be rest assured. I'm gonna have the recording uploaded on Spotify, Google, Apple, and other audio-based broadcasting platforms, and I will have the link shared on the same event page, uh, so that you know you can listen in and go backtrack some of these specifics. You know, Dr. King shared. So on that note, uh, Dr. King, let's actually, you know, get into the conversation about adverse childhood experience. How do ACEs influence health and opportunity? I want to first understand what is ACEs 
and how does mm-hmm. ACE influence health and opportunity? Let's hear that from you. Yes, ACEs, and I'm going to just say adverse childhood experiences, they're basically um, very stressful and overwhelming experiences that children um, can experience in their environment and particularly in their family, their home, their school, and their communities um, that overwhelm their systems because they're young and they're vo- they're vulnerable because the systems are not fully developed. For example, the brain is not considered mature until the late 20s, on average about the age of 25. And so babies babies and, and child brains are very, very vulnerable to what's going on in their environment. And so when they're exposed to things that are extremely stressful, which um, I know we're going to talk about later, it overwhelms the systems and it has physiological, developmental and mental health effects. All right. All right. That makes sense. So so adverse child experiences are basically like traumatic events. And you said between mm-hmm. zero and 20. Is that the age range? Typically? Um, no, it's, it's really um, just childhood in general. Just It's based on the Kaiser Permanente study in um, in the 90s. And it's things that happen during your childhood that have long-term effects into adulthood. But it's specifically talking about a child's exposure, like you said, to traumatic events. And I'm glad that you're using the word trauma because I think historically we have had a limited view and understanding of trauma um, based on the original diagnosis of PTSD, which focuses on like war and um, external threats that feel like you're going to die. But the thing is, when you're a little person, particularly a baby, they don't have the ability to understand um, like different levels of threat. And so threat is just perceived in a very simplistic way because of where they are developmentally. And so I think in recent years and recent decades, the research and the clinical work that we are doing has really uncovered how vulnerable children are to things that maybe adults don't see as traumatic, but they are traumatic to a developing system. All right, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. So because the brain is not developed yet, they actually don't have coping mechanisms yet or they are not well-versed with how to handle such a situation and that causes stress, anxiety and behavioral problems in the long run, right? And it not only affects their childhood, but uh, even when you when you become an adult, you know, it just carries on like a building block, you know, throughout uh, these years. Am I right in saying it? Is my analysis right? Yes, Jason. And I think... Um, additionally, for children who are really young, they also don't have the language to describe what's going on in their environments and what they're experiencing. And so without language, it's really hard to emotionally, psychologically process some of these events. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Now, I want you to just highlight and just amplify on something which you said about the child safety uh, mm-hmm. You said child safety gets compromised. Okay, now we've been hearing about, uh, you know, things which happen in families, school shootings, a lot of things, you know, which are happening nowadays around. A lot yeah. of violence, you know, children are uh, thrown at. So if you can just highlight, like, what really happens, what's running in the child's mind when these things are happening, what uh, a child does generally, and what should a parent do? Okay, that was that was a mouthful, Jason. I'll try to unpack all of that in one quote. <laughs> um, and so first, when a child is, exp- and all the things that you mentioned are absolutely traumatic, to go to school and to have to 
um, even think about the possibility of your day involving a shooting in your classroom is absolutely compromising um, a student's sense of safety. When I was in school, I didn't have to worry about these things. And so I'm glad that you mentioned those examples in particular. Um, and so what happens is when we feel threat and we, we feel a sense of threat, um, our brains, our brain, which is connected to different systems in our bodies goes to work. And so these systems, mainly the cardiovascular system, the metabolic system, immune system, and the neuroendocrine systems do whatever they need to do in order to facilitate something that's called the fight, flight, or freeze response. And so a long time ago, when we were more like a hunter and gathering gatherer society, where we had to worry about tigers and bears and things like that, um, you know, this this was very um, it was very important. And basically, it's this this response to things in our in our, our environment that are perceived as threatening or um, dangerous has allowed hum the human species to exist and and continue to exist on Earth, right? And so, what happens is when we perceive threat around us these mechanisms, these physiological systems are triggered to support our efforts to secure safety. But the problem is we no longer live with lions, tigers, and bears, but the, but the brain doesn't differentiate between what the threat is and what, what, you know, what the threat is. And, and so you have a young child that is in a situation where they may not feel safe or they perceive threat where there's violence around them, like you mentioned, or to even see a loved one being hurt or something happening to someone that's important in their lives, um, they, the systems are triggered and it's almost like a lion and tiger's in a room with the child. And so physiologically, and so what happens is the heart rate and the blood pressure increases, blood sugar increases to access in, um, the body's, um, to increase the body's access to energy. Um, the immune system is activated just in case there's um, injury or an infection of some sort as a result of this encounter. Um, and then there's certain stress hormones, particularly cortisol that are released in the bloodstream and it increases your heart rate and your blood pressure. So you have these physiological things that are happening in your body that you can feel going on and it's scary, but it's an appropriate response to threat. And so, it's it's good, right? We need we need these these mechanisms to work in order to get out of situations that are potentially dangerous. But when a child is continuously or has a continual um, experience of this, then that's where we consider it ACEs. When they are can have repeated exposure to um, experiences that trigger these type of physiological responses, that's when we get into um, the negative effects of these natural ways the body has helped us survive, it becomes like negative because the systems become over, they almost become like flooded and kind of worn out prematurely. And so that's what this study is about, the ACEs study. Mm. I appreciate you bringing more clarity on this. And I know it's a little sensitive to speak about death, but at what point you know, the pressure becomes so much that, you know, it leads to early death. Um, the early death has to do with, um, according to the research, it has to do with people. There's a correlation between the number of early adverse um, experiences you experience in childhood. So that 
could be exposure to criminal activity in the home. It could be exposure to domestic violence or intense partner discord or um, parental substance abuse. You know, these different things that are very challenging. It could be poverty and we can go over um, some of these stressors in greater detail so we can kind of expand this understanding of what is stressful to children. But when children are in these environments, experiencing these things continuously, um, it, it just, it, it basically um, is natural, right? To learn how to cope with yeah, things absolutely. That, cannot, that you cannot necessarily stop or control. And so we begin, the human mind is so brilliant. We begin from a very young age to devise ways to cope. Um, and so when these these coping mechanisms go or continue on to adulthood and it's like substance abuse, like there's a correlation between early nicotine use and ACEs. As young as 14 years old, beginning to use nicotine, um, we see people vaping, we see people using drugs. And so when we begin to, to look at um, maladaptive ways to cope with the stress in our environment, it can lead to chronic health conditions that can lead to death. And so that is over time, it's over or premature death. And it's not the case for everyone, but the num but the research says it's pretty significant. Um, and the more ACEs you are exposed to, the higher you um, higher risk you're at for premature death as a result of these chronic health conditions that can exist. I appreciate you bringing more light on this subject and clarifying that. Uh, you know that was that was amazing, Doctor King. You have such wealth of information about this subject matter. I'm truly jawstruck uh, at this moment of time. I wanted to also acknowledge uh, a few questions which I have from Clubhouse. Uh, you know, I I have I'm getting messages asking if it's if this is a live show. This is actually a live show uh, with my guest, Doctor King. We would uh, start Q&A in about 15 minutes. Uh, if you do have questions, please hold on to that thought. Uh, we would start Q&A in about 15 to 20 minutes roughly. And, and you can ask as much as possible. Uh, we do have a lot of users on LinkedIn. Okay, LinkedIn does have yeah. a limit, guys. <laughs> okay, I want to say hi to everybody on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, whoever uh -huh. has joined. So thank you so much for supporting Dr. King and myself uh, and the show. You know, really, really appreciate, uh, you know, your love and support here. So let's actually get into, uh, you know, the conversation again. So could you tell us, Dr. King, what are the different type of adverse childhood experiences? Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe mm -hmm. a few sample size, if you can share. And what can be done to prevent those sample size ACs? Okay. Yes. Um, uh, physical abuse is definitely one. Sexual abuse as I said, criminal activity in the home, ex early exposure to adult substance use. Um, actually, the ACEs study actually studied the impact of children viewing their mothers being treated violently. Um, that has negative effects. Um, and we can understand why, because of the early attachment that develops between a mother and child, and if, especially if they're nursing or during pregnancy, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, exposure to a household member who has mental illness or witnessing a suicide attempt. These are things that can happen in the home, but I want to kind of expand it beyond that. Um, discrimination, sub, um, having to attend a substandard school, 
um, living in neighborhoods where there's poor water, water and air quality, or um, a lot of community violence or poverty and the things that come along with poverty, all of these things can be considered adverse childhood experiences. Uh, those are some you know interesting things which you shared. So if your surrounding is, let's say, not very hygienic, okay, if the school system is not very uh, equipped, poor water, air, and other resources you require to, you know, help a child grow and develop and feel safe and sustain in this world. If, if you have those uh, resources limited, so it can definitely affect it. So I appreciate you sharing physical, uh, sexual, you said emotional, and then, you know, the overall setting of how the world is treating us. Now, what I want to ask you, though, Dr. King, it would be next to impossible to offer, like, a common experience to each and everybody, right, uh, in childhood, mm -hmm. because we have so many families, and they could be at different scale, uh, you know, uh, as per the hierarchy, right? Some of them would be poor, some of them would be very, very rich, some of them would be at the center. So mm -hmm. how would that all transition up? So how can we ensure that, you know, we can offer them, like, you know, a common setting which helps them to grow irrespective you know where and what standard you belong to or where you are associated with i don't know if that make question makes any sense but i don't know if i'm phrasing it accurately so i want to make sure that i'm understanding the question I, um you're saying that we people have diverse experiences and and they may we may not have a lot of common ground in terms of socioeconomic status and what yes. our neighborhood may look like yeah but what are some things that we can do universally to promote healthy child development yeah you, I, I think you said it better actually <laughs> mine was a silly <laughs> version okay oh, you're fine you're fine jason you're great this is great that's a it's a tough question so i just wanted to make sure yeah i, I fully understood it i think primarily no matter what your socioeconomic status and and um, like these different adversities that we can experience in society, more than anything, children need um, a sense of safety. And when I say safety, and I'm talking from infancy on, I mean a caregiver that is able to um, engage in the, you know, a healthy level of emotional regulation within themselves so that when the child does have um some response to the stressors in the environment that the parent is available and attuned. When I say attuned, I mean able to recognize the emotional, psychological, physical need of the child and is responsive. So attunement is a is a, a major protective factor for children despite what's going on in their environment. So no matter what's going on around you, if you have a parent that sees you, and I mean really sees you and really hears you and is really responsive to the needs that you have, that is a protective factor for children and it promotes healthy development. I, I appreciate you sharing that, uh, you know, Dr. King. Thank you so much for bringing clarity on this. I wanted to actually, uh, you know, ask you about what happens in adults as you experience it. Okay, now we spoke about childhood. It is very traumatic. But how does that reflect on adulthood as you transition to adults? Okay, mm -hmm. how what kind of chronic health problems or, you know, issues does that lead into? And apart from trauma, depression, anxiety, and uh, impaired memory or flight or fight mode, whatever you say. Okay, <laughs> what else does that lead to? Okay, now I, I 
it did a short amount of research on this subject i came across an article which spoke about false self victimhood thinking passive aggressiveness stuff like that or passivity yeah. okay are these the only components or do you think there's more to it um i think there's more to it i think that's part of the picture but um when you when you're an adult that's grown up in a or had a childhood in which you're exposed to um trauma um it can result in physiological problems um such as intestinal problems digestive problems um you can have excessive weight gain because there's a there's a correlation between excessive amounts of cortisol which is one of the stress hormones and um your metabolic system and how we metabolize our food um it can result in increased blood pressure it can result in low libido like low sex drive it can result in sleep is sleep problems insomnia muscle pain um different bodily aches and um in terms of medical conditions there's a correlation between specifically cardiovascular disease diabetes and depression for adults that um are exposed to early adverse childhood experiences um and then in relation to what you were talking about um in terms of how it impacts a personality it it just it, it impacts a personality because you um if you don't deal with if an individual does not deal with these traumatic early experiences um in a way that um they're able to resolve them and and just kind of integrate them into um just kind of make peace with them and and work through them which is typically done therapeutically that it creates like some of the the things that you're mentioning it it makes it difficult to um remain emotionally regulated and make it can impact your ability to interact with people there's a lot of isolation that can come with it because in, as you can imagine if you grew up not feeling safe then it impacts the way you relate to people and so depending on how um the level of trauma that you're exposed to it, it it can impact the way you relate with others right because when we're a child we're learning about ourselves we're learning about others and we're learning about the world and how safe the world is and so the thing is with aces these children who experience that they they have a compromised sense of safety and so there's a compromised um ability to trust others right because you weren't kept safe when you were young and vulnerable so that can play out in a whole lot of different ways that create self esteem issues relationship issues um and like some of the anger style like you're talking about passive aggressive anger right because how does a child who loves their caregiver and their family um their father for example who they may have seen uh physically or experienced or you know a, a family member of any gender um causing harm in a family that's very confusing to process um to love someone that's causing harm and th- and threatening your sense of safety and so it does cause some some emotional challenges that are very difficult to work through that can surface as a passive aggressive anger style like you mentioned and um some self esteem issue issues like you mentioned in terms of false sense of self i i thank you so much for sharing that dr king uh i i just want to highlight that i have started inviting people to come on stage and now on mm-hmm. linkedin does not give you the option to invite people up but on clubhouse i have actually done that okay and okay. i see angelina has been raising her hand angelina i tried bringing you up but you know it's not allowing me maybe you can uh 
keep the hand raising off for a few seconds redo it maybe i can uh, you know invite you up so guys if you have questions uh, if you're listening on linkedin or clubhouse if you have questions this is the time raise your hand and i would be happy to bring you up under only one condition okay you have to be listening to the show from the past 15 or 20 minutes to get an idea what we were speaking about i'm only bringing those people up okay just to be respectful uh, to my guest so i want to start off uh, uh, with saying hi to tiffany we're going to start q and a okay so tiffany welcome uh, to the brand identity design podcast she's uh, a licensed mental health counsel Hello. What's up, Tiffany? Hi. And and Dr. King is actually on on LinkedIn. She wants to say hi. And Tiffany yeah. is a good good close friend of mine, uh, Dr. Yeah. King. I learned a lot about uh, you know how to deal with uh, you know trauma or you know anything in general. Like you know she's my go to psychologist, uh, like go to therapist, not psychologist, <laughs> <laughs> when I deal with stuff. <laughs> so. I'm so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Hi Tiffany, welcome. Hi, Dr. King. Welcome. So nice to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. I've been looking forward to the show. Um, Jason, I've been looking forward to it as well. You can tell he's very prepared. I can tell. Like, I love how you started off with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and kind of brought in some psychology one on one for people that don't quite understand, and then, and then related it to how things are today. And one of the things I just wanted to ask you, since I'm a licensed mental health counselor, I also have a live radio show that I've been on for eight years. It's award-winning, and um, it's based on mental health, ending the stigma on mental health, called Moments of Clarity with Tiffany. I'd love to have you as a guest one day as well. So we talk about these kind of things on the show, and um, what I loved that you were talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how that we need to feel safe as children, right? adverse ACEs, and what you were expecting. Speaking about in our world today, and this is my question: in our world today, there's um, cyberbullying, social media, things such as you know the. Uh, I'm not gonna point them out because sometimes I get in trouble for stating <laughs> platforms. But you guys understand, you know, social media, the the apps that these kids go on, and things like that. And um, it's so much easier than. Um, when I was in school, they didn't have this, um, you know, if you're going to get bullied, you would have to get, it would take a while for a rumor to get through the school or, or something like that, or someone would have to pass you a note, or it was a, they, all of the internet, in my opinion, took away the gift of wondering or mystery, wondering if somebody's going to be at the party or the dance or anything. And mm -hmm. like you said, back in the day, at least not that we knew of, the school shootings and things like that just wasn't something, it's like anything It was like, oh no, so and so is gonna kick my butt tomorrow, or something like that. Not, or yell at me. Not come and blow up the school. And there was definitely tornado drills and fire alarms and fire drills or whatever, but not active shooter drills. So our kids are coming up, and this is my question: Our children are just being exposed to um, social media, putting themselves out there, getting the response or lack thereof from likes or dislikes or being popular or not popular based on who's following them or how many followers they get on certain things and then and then also having to prove themselves socially in person in a school environment and worrying about if bullying is going to get them killed through an active shooter and a drill and then the exposure to teachers possibly can't get anything whatever and 
and my opinion is kind of there that this is definitely taking a toll on this generation and i wanted to hear your thoughts on that i hope that wasn't too long-winded but no no i i understand um my thoughts on it and what i'm seeing clinically in in working with young people is just um an increase well you said a lot there was a lot of different dynamics right because they're exposed to these unrealistic beauty standards right in terms of social media um exposed to um, maybe lifestyles um of the rich and famous um and having the opportunity to have a, a look in the inner life or what's presented as the private life of these people which were which was harder when we were growing up. So what I see is um, an increase of anxiety and like body image issues in young people. I see, um, particularly over the past few years, just a lot of people, with the, particularly with the pandemic, a lot of um, young adults that are really teenagers and young adults that I'm, I'm running into struggling with just a pervasive, um, like an anxiety about their ability to successfully transition into adulthood, because a lot of these things that are portrayed on social media are, you know, not really obtainable for the average person or not by the age of 21. But when we see young people who are Instagram famous all of a sudden and, and the life of like an influencer that's making thousands of dollars by just doing posts and things like that, I think it undermines a lot of things, um, in that are going on in, in child development or, or the development of brains, social skills, emotional, social emotional um, development in young people. And and the sad thing about it is it's it's not based on necessarily truth. It's based on things that are put out there that are really managed by the people who are running these sites. And so I think it's important for parents. I was just reading a research article about this actually um, a week ago, and they were discouraging parents from even using filters um, on me on social media, just because we as the caregivers are, and I'm including myself as weak, so I'm a mother of five. Um, we as the caregivers are the primary influences of our children. And we know that teenagers and so and young adults, um, when they reach that age, their peers um, the voice of their peers really um, is what's most important, but it doesn't necessarily completely replace the influence of the family. And so as young people are bombarded with all the things in social media pertaining to lifestyle, pertaining to um, socioeconomics, pertaining to body image, it's really important that the people that are actually in their lives are doing things that counter some of these influences. Um, in terms of racial violence that's been happening um, I've seen an increase in anxiety, particularly um, in black males, um, because it's a lot of these things are traumatic. And so to be re-exposed to these traumatic incidences over and over again through media, whether we want to, to or not, right? We log on to our social media page and this is what's popping up as a headliner for the day. And so there's some um, negative mental health consequences um, in young people for being um, exposed for, uh, due to repeated exposure of violence, particularly racial violence. Yeah, especially nowadays, I would, you know, back a, a year ago, everything was about racial violence during the pandemic and everything too. Um, but um, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. And it's interesting that you said about the filters, even with 
parental controls or filters you try to protect our kids when they go on YouTube or there I go, I accidentally say one bit. Um or any video <laughs> it's you can filter all you want. And I've worked in correctional facilities where there are certain things they that would red flag. You look up um, something to help somebody in a group with pride and then homosexual sites come up or something like that. So it I mean, filters can come up they're gonna see something anyway. You know what I mean? It doesn't even matter what pops up, like I mean what you try to filter. Um so exactly what they're counterseeing at home with healthy parents, regardless on socioeconomic status and things like that, because um even people with a lot of wealth um can have very toxic homes as well as as lower income families and you never know what goes on behind closed doors and they're not going to post that on their favorite social platform either you know i think a lot of um, people especially with the body image like you're saying they compare themselves to others um some girls are out there showing you know everything you're like oh my goodness they're 14 but i'm trying to you know, look like models and and it's to each their own that's the response they're wanting to get but not everybody can get the same response or would and that could be damaging to them and their self-esteem or feeling like that is their self-worth on their response on to others in a off of social media things like that and thank you so much for your thoughts on that and um and well said and i'm glad that you spoke like that um and you said what you said because it kind of reaffirms how I'm taking my approach in my practice as well. Thank you. I'm Tiffany Warner. Nice to meet you. Okay. I'll let the next person go. And Tiffany, I want to be clear. I, I am um, the research is is encouraging the use of um, filters that monitor that you know that help caregivers monitor what people young kids are accessing online. But when I'm talking about filters, um, decreasing the use of filters for parents, I mean beauty filters where we're um, posting pictures that are filtered to alter our physical appearance. Um, so that type of filter was what they were, what the research article was um, talking about. The mental health community is discouraging parents from using, um, as you said, to counter some of these unrealistic body um, expectations and beauty standards that young people are being constantly exposed to via social media. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing okay. that. And and Tiffany, thank you so much for asking this question. We, we do have a few people on LinkedIn. I want to ensure that I'm able to reach to everybody within the time limit. Do you have a follow-up question, Tiffany, before we move ahead? No, no thank you. No, I'm all set. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Tiffany. <laughs> She's a good friend, you know, I'm just saying. So I want to welcome Laurie from uh, Clubhouse, uh, you know, guys. So Laurie is also another close friend. So it's so nice to see you, Laurie. And uh, please flash your mic if you're available. Awesome. So Laurie, do you have a question or is there anything you'd like to contribute to this conversation? Hi, Jason. So nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a bit and I uh, love to support you because I love your rooms. Um, I do have a couple of I have one question and a couple of comments. I really, really appreciate the converse conversation um, and hello to Dr. King. And um, I just want to. 
Hi, I just wanted to give you kind of like a really like quick little background. You know, I, I am a person who had a lot of uh, childhood trauma and mm. domestic violence, uh, childhood survivor of domestic violence, and I score about a eight out of 10 for the aces. Mm. And, you know, I wanted to just confirm a lot of what you said as far as like the side effects and the struggles that kids go through. You know, I, I struggled to um, have my attention being focused in school. I struggled with reading. I struggled with anxiety and depression. And, you know, later on, um, you know, suicidal thoughts and, you know, all those different things. So um, thank God, I, you know, by the grace of God, I always say, I don't know how, but I really became the anomaly uh, as far as not becoming a statistic. Like I, I never got into drugs or alcohol or addictions or um, the obvious forms of self-harm, like, you know, cutting and things. But I think with the, um, you know, the, the perfectionism and the, and the shaming and all those things, which I consider forms of self-harm because they're emotional self-harming, um, that's where I struggled a lot. So, you know, I, although I, uh, I, I really, I think that the reason why I didn't fall prey to becoming a statistic is because early on I was very dedicated to healing the traumas and undoing as much as I possibly could the cycles and not falling into those pitfalls. So, um, I have to say that I'm pretty proud of myself for having, having a good head of my shoulders. Um, yes. but it was not a, it was not a perfect straight line. It was not an easy journey and it still isn't because some things pop up for me. And I wanted to just say uh, thank you for mentioning the bit about a passive aggressiveness, because where I struggle now is um, finally coming to a place of like, you know, understanding self-care and self-love and worthiness and, you know, um, balancing it all is interacting with people in my family who have not addressed their issues and how yeah. that can be very triggering for me because, mm -hmm. you know, as the person who experienced it within the family dynamic, you can easily fall back into your role in like the sibling role and the child role, especially being the youngest child. Um, and that can be very triggering for me. So I guess my question is um, partly with that, but also just in general, um, you know, I didn't realize until my, early twenties after I had actually gone and got my own degree in psychology that I had been, um, exhibiting signs of like having gone through PTSD. And like, I, it was because your fight or flight response is heightened for so long. Mm -hmm. What happens many times with people is that they lessen the degree of the trauma. You know, it's like you start comparing trauma. Well, it wasn't as bad as it used to be because now I'm out of the situation, but that doesn't take it away until you really deal with it. And as you age, you go through new traumas and new things that happen to you, especially as a woman. And, um, you're dealing with how men treat you and different things that happened, happened to you. So I guess my question is, um, once you reach the age of almost like you said, around the age of like 25 and things still happening to you, do you become more susceptible to 
I guess like the comp like the compound stressors being not it's not triggering, but it's like compound stressors being more difficult to deal with because of having had that journey. Mm -hmm. And um for like for me, the way that things have played out is that I was always a stuffer and a suppressor. Mm -hmm. So I dealt with like two bouts of like pre-cancer so far. I had digestive issues, like all of the things that when you like bottle it up. Yes. And so as I said before, you go through things naturally through life, through losses and like, you know, things show up. I wanted to point this out too, is that things show up for people too, like where I didn't repeat the cycles of dating, um, like an alcoholic or things like that. But mm -hmm. I got into jobs where I didn't realize that my boss was abusing me. Or mm. I got into relationships that were less obviously abusive, but still abusive. So, but then once I realized that, it became really tough for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You bring up so many good points. Yeah, and I'm, it I'm was loaded, Dr. King. Like, <laughs> yeah. Loaded. So many I'm things you said, Laurie. Like, I'm, I'm like jotting it down. Like, like I don't know. <laughs> but I appreciate Sorry. you sharing it. And, and I appreciate yeah. you being vulnerable. I know with us on stage. Thank you so much. I'm kind of curious what the question actually is. There was a lot of great info there. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing, um, do well, first of all, before I get into that, I want to thank you for your transparency. This is a very difficult subject and it's almost taboo to talk about. And that's why I'm so glad Jason hosted this. And I, I totally celebrate your resilience. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up because this is a very, um, heavy topic and it can be kind of like a, a downer, but I want to say that even if you have experienced ACEs or, or trauma as a child, it is not, it doesn't have to be a life sentence. You don't have to forever be imprisoned to some of the things that we're talking about in terms of, um, the, um, the negative effects of it. You can heal from childhood trauma. It's not, it's not irreparable. So I, I, I commend you because the human spirit is extremely resi resilient and you can have corrective experiences in new relationships as you begin to um, heal and connect with um, healthier and healthier individuals. You can have these corrective experiences that can lower um, some of the hypersensitivity and hypervigilance that you're talking about and to make into um, as you experience more and more safety in different relationships. So I, I totally agree about what you're saying because you have, because individual has experienced trauma and been exposed to early trauma does not mean that they have to be a statistic. These are just generalities that we're talking about based on the research. So I want to do, I want to say that. Um, and thank you for your transparency and disclosing your, you know, about your journey. But I think you bring up some good points in terms of, um, some of the ways that we are affected and, and develop or get into unhealthy situations that are less obvious than some of the more obvious ones like substance abuse and things like that. And, um, and the, the reason that happens is because again, when you're a child, you're learning about yourself and, and you're developing your sense of self-concept and your self-esteem is being developed. You're learning about other people 
and you're learning about the world. And so when you when that experience translates into um, less than uh, like less than ideal, less than healthy um, conceptualizations of self and of other people, we gravitate we tend to gravitate towards what's what's what we know. Like you know, right? The body normally moves towards homeostasis and familiarity. And so that therefore, when we have experienced family, you know, trauma in our family, because maybe we grew up in a very hierarchical or patriarchal or even misogynistic family background or a family where there's a lot of abuse and maltreatment of um, different people, that's what we, that's, it kind of becomes our baseline for what that we're working with in terms of navigating through life. And it's not until you get exposed to other people that you, or a there, or, you know, you have some kind of, you know, aha moment in life, or you have the wisdom to get into services to begin to process some of, some of these difficult experiences that we begin to imagine a different type of life, a different type of relationship, a different self than we learned um, as a child. And so until that process happens, we can um, get into re- uh, intergenerational dynamics and find ourselves marrying someone that mirrors some of these childhood um, influences or some of the adults in our life that maybe were less than healthy because that is what we know. And so this is how intergenerational patterns can um, form and continue in, in families until someone heals, like you're saying, and begins to question and to, begins to kind of push back on some of the things that our family may conceptualize as normal. Thank you so much for sharing that. And and Dr. King, I just want to personally acknowledge Laurie. You know, I, I love the fact that she was able to open up and share all those yeah. things. And uh, I was completely unaware of this. If you actually meet Laurie, I have not physically met her, but if you just meet her as a person... She's such a lively soul. Tons mm. of positivity around. I have never seen her cribbing, crying. She's like mm-hmm. always on the go, right? You know, Jason, you need to do this, this. So I just want to personally acknowledge that, you know, she's an amazing person, uh, a very, very good friend. And, and thank you so much for being vulnerable, Laurie. Uh, you know, I want to ensure that, you know, we do. Do you have a follow-up question? Like, is there anything else you'd like to ask Dr. King before we move on to the other speakers on stage on LinkedIn? Thank you, Jason. Um, no, I guess my 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 overall question was more just like, can experiencing adult trauma be more difficult if you've gone and had like a high score on the ACEs because of it being kind of like compound interest, if that makes sense, like complex trauma or complex oh. like issues, yeah. So, um, like you like you said, com- complex developmental trauma, which is which is a result of um, being exposed to these adverse childhood experiences, can be like one of the symptoms, um, diagnostic symptoms of of trauma diagnosis is hypersensitivity and hypervigilance, right? Because we have experienced things that have made us not feel safe. And so because of that, we have, we are, um, there's a vulnerability that can develop 
um, within us where we are viewing and perceiving interactions and things at a heightened level um, because of the painful experiences that we've had. And so if you have not, if an individual has not developed ways to, um, healthy ways to cope um, with being triggered, then that can feel, I think, the intensity of that can feel greater than someone who maybe has learned how to cope. And so I think to answer your question, it's not necessarily about how many ACEs that you've experienced. It's really about how how well you've learned how to cope with feeling physiologically and psychologically triggered in, in situations where you perceive threat. Yeah, I, I definitely would agree with that. And um, what did I want to say? Um, I would agree with that. And uh, I'll just say that... Um, I think being in the present moment as much as possible is really helpful and mm -hmm. um, constantly like that. Self-care is a big one for people who have gone through ACEs because so much of it is about like neglect and um, mm -hmm. and the unworthiness and the lack of confidence and things like that, you know, pouring back into yourself for me has mm -hmm. been a big game changer. And um, just being aware of like, again, how you can undo the, the cycle, because for me, I was a cycle breaker, like as much as I possibly could, I was a cycle breaker and I still am, you know, there's still some things that are left in me. I think we're always, uh, we, we're always unaware of like how deep it really is just as fa mm -hmm. fast as you think you've transitioned through things, something comes up and you're like, and that was that, that for me is, I think the reason why sometimes certain traumas hit me harder because mm -hmm. I still, I realize I still struggle with shaming myself thinking mm -hmm. I I'm better than this. I thought I learned this lesson before and then mm -hmm. feeling bad about myself that I let it happen again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shame and guilt are also um, can be um, long-term effects of, um, adverse childhood experiences, um, because if we don't have that psychological safety when we're growing up, you know, children um, make up, they make up reasons to justify what's going on around them. And typically the child brain attributes um, what's going around them to themselves. So that's why you, it's very common when children uh, maybe experience something like a divorce or um, the absence of a parent, if it's not properly explained to them, they will attribute that absence to something that they did, which is why neglect is actually such um, a very, very hard. We don't spend a lot, enough time talking about neglect because someone who's physically abused or sexually abused, a lot of times, um, even though it's, it's not necessarily correct, no child deserves it, to be abused in any way. Um, but in a child's mind, we can make up reasons for um, someone slapping us. You know, if I maybe if I were quiet, more quiet, or maybe if I didn't make a mess, or maybe if I would have done this, but because I didn't do this, this is why. But with neglect, there is not necessarily associated with any child behavior. So there tends to be a higher internalization of um, the blame and the shame and the badness because neglect is not it's like it's it's kind of um diffuse it's 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 not necessarily associated with anything the child is doing right and so if you are a victim of ne childhood neglect it is it is hard to not 
um, shame yourself or feel or or you you might struggle with this sense of internalized guilt and blame because how does a child explain and begin to even understand why they're not being taken care of? How do you begin to even conceptualize that as a child? And so I, I encourage you, I applaud you and your resilience. I applaud, I can tell that you've worked very hard um, to process some of these experiences in the heal and even in your transparency and the courage that you're taking today, because I guarantee you're not the only one on the call that has, has these struggles and you're helping someone else just by talking about it, but it is a journey and you're here and you're still here and you're courageous and you're healthy enough to even recognize what's going on. And so you, I imagine that you have experienced a tremendous amount of growth and that's to be celebrated and commended. Absolutely, absolutely. And Laurie, children's make some noise for Laurie. That's a new version of Laurie. So thank you so much for that, Laurie. So I want Jason, to be. Jason, can I, Jason, can I ask Laurie? Like, yeah. Jay, like, does that does that resonate with you at all, Laurie? It does, and really, it was a combination. It's so weird. It's like, um, for me, it was like a combination of neglect and the emotional abuse, and then seeing the physical abuse as well so it it definitely resonates though I, it's funny because i don't blame i didn't i i don't know that i directly blame myself but again it's like you know with these things there's so many sneaky ways that they can show up sometimes they're so conspicuous you know or inconspicuous that we can fool ourselves easily into believing that oh no i'm not doing this but if it's showing up in a certain way it's there so thank you dr king you're welcome. Yes, a lot of these things happening on an unconscious, subconscious level. Mm-hmm. But thank yeah, you. thank you. So much. Thank you so much for that, Laurie. I wanted to actually acknowledge some of the people on LinkedIn. And uh, we are kind of in a time crunch. So we'll try to have as much Q&As as possible. Uh, you know, if you are posing a question, try to see if you can break it down to short form content uh, so that, you know, we can answer and acknowledge everybody on stage. Uh, so I want to welcome Timothy. Uh, I want to welcome Thomas, Shirley, uh, and Dr. Laura Cobb uh, to the stage. I wanted to, I, I don't know the exact sequence on LinkedIn. You don't have a PTR sequence as to who joined first. I'm going to go with Shirley. So I'm so sorry, just in case, you know, if if I'm not uh, saying hi or acknowledging you right away. So Shirley, welcome to the stage. Uh, in a nice to see you. Do you have a question? Or is there anything you'd like to contribute to this conversation, Shirley? Um, yes, I have a question. Just to check, am I clear? Do you hear me, please? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Oh, fantastic. Hi, Dr. King. Um, thank you so much for this talk. So basically, I work in child weight management in the UK. And mm. unfortunately, in the UK, we have a tiered system for supporting small children. So to sum up, very, very fast, we've got tier one to tier four. I work in tier two. Tier two has no clinical um psychologist support they wait uh for tier three where the child has more um serious severe symptoms so for example they've got full-blown diabetes or they've got high blood pressure i'm doing my research in tier two and um based on the results that i've got 
from my research so far, we desperately need to kind of abolish the tiered system because we we found out that so many kids now have got such um, a high level of adverse child experiences that it's actually affecting their weight and they need psychology support as part of the services that we provide. I'm sure you know this already and majority of you know this, but for kids that have um, had you know, experience um, bad, I mean, you know, have had bad experiences in their, in their childhood or in early years, it affects their weight in so many ways. How do I go about convincing the powers that be? I mean, these tiered systems have been in place for decades. Mm -hmm. My research, unfortunately, we only had seven families because we started it during during the pandemic. So I don't have great numbers to go by and stand in front of the giants and go, we need to change how we're doing things now. Mm -hmm. How do I go about convincing them that we need to make sure that we've got psychology support as part of the tier system? Otherwise, we are going to get more and more children in tier three and then tier four, which is bariatric surgery. How do I do that? That is a big question. Um, and I, and I, to I totally agree. Um, and it's not only in, in your department in medical spaces, it's in a lot of departments um, in, in medical uh, settings. But I think despite the small sample size of your study, there's so many studies, particularly the Kaiser study that links ACEs with obesity and other other health out negative health outcomes. So the research is there. And I think that you're absolutely right. Um, this was a point that I was going to mention earlier, um, later, if I had the opportunity, but I think having interdisciplinary discussions mm -hmm. about child welfare, welfare and child um, health is, is a critical um, um, a critical change or pivot that we need to have, like in our mm -hmm. systems, interdisciplinary, mm -hmm. multidisciplinary mm -hmm. conversations mm -hmm. about health are a must. They're just a mm -hmm. must. And so I think um, like you having this conversations, you, you know, I'm sure you're very well versed in the research and what it says. So you have the data, you have the body mm -hmm. of literature that supports what you're, what you're seeing, um, even in your particular setting. And I think beginning to build relationships with um, providers in different departments and beginning to inc include them in team meetings and things like that so, and, and doing, um, well, for my field, it would be considered psychoeducation, but discussing the concerns and the trends that you're seeing is part mm -hmm. of the journey. Um, in one of my past positions, we were doing this in the, on the pediatric oncology and NICU, and it is a real battle. It is a uphill battle. People are like, why do infants need, what are you going to, why is a psychologist mm -hmm. like you? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's, it's this pivot, right? Mm -hmm. From treating something and being preventative in our, mm -hmm. in our, in our care models, right? Mm -hmm. We're looking for early prevention, which is what you're talking about in, in mm -hmm. abolishing these tier systems. I don't mm -hmm. have a comment about that because it's kind of different in the, in the United States. I'm mm -hmm. not familiar with mm -hmm. but I do I have worked in enough interdisciplinary settings to know that anything that we're doing to promote child well-being has to be an interdisciplinary conversation. Yeah, definitely. And so you're doing, you're beginning to do that work. And I think it, it is difficult, but I think once you have more allies across mm -hmm. various disciplines, 
Mm. I think it becomes easier, backed up by the research, it becomes easier for people to begin to even desire to have an ear to hear what you're saying. Mm. Mm, thank you. You're right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. So um, thank you so much for that. And if there's anybody that's listening that's in the UK or not in the UK but can help, would like to work with me in making this change that is very much needed um, to safeguard the future of generations in the UK, then please get in touch. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you all. So thank you so much. Thank Peter, you. For your, yeah, thank you. And Jason, thank you so much. Please keep in touch. I'd love to be in touch yes. and, and partner with you and join you in those Ooh. efforts. It's something that's extremely important. And I think um, it needs to, I think you're right, it needs to be system, um, change on a systemic and policy level. Oh, that would be an honor. Thank you so much. <laughs> you made my week. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> okay, I'll be in touch. <laughs> Shirley, I Bye. want to ensure that, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Mm -hmm. King has answered all your questions. Do you have a follow-up question yes. before we move on? No, that's it for this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> you you being here and, and, and joining my space. My show, just in case yeah. if you're new, is hosted mm -hmm. live every wednesday at 12 eastern standard time okay and thank i would be so here much. with different topics just in case if you're new okay on that I'll note i want you. to personally go ahead shirley i'm so sorry i didn't mean to cut you back there it's done it's done thank you so i was i'll say thank you and i'll join next yeah. time yeah and and i would also uh appreciate if you guys can send me connection request on LinkedIn because what I usually do is once the show recording is finished, I give credit to people who have actually contributed. Okay, so if you are among those individuals, do connect me, uh, send me a connection request on LinkedIn and I would be happy to show credits and thank you for your contribution. So just in case. So I want to acknowledge Dr. Cobb. Uh, thank you so much for being here and uh, so nice to see you after... You know, I, I think many months. <laughs> How are you doing? And do you have a question or is there anything you like to contribute? Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. And I'm, I'm in the process of, I love LinkedIn, my first love. And I'm in the process of connecting with everybody who's here. If I don't get somebody, I beg your pardon. Dr. King, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I ask for a request, connect request here on LinkedIn as well. Being considerate of the time, I uh, am wondering if you're familiar with the book, The Body Keeps the Score. I um, yes. Um, I adore that book, and I have so many questions. And I personally, I am I am a licensed professional counselor. My PhD is in child development and family studies. And uh, however, I am I am not a master's in counseling and personal services yet, and I am not clinical. So I'm mindful regarding the diagnoses and such, uh, but I'm about the scope and the parameters of my qualifications. That said, I'm wondering number one, what is your opinion of the book, and number two. What is your opinion regarding the author, if you're familiar with the book, his um, his attempt to contact the American Psychiatric Association regarding his proposal to add in the developmental trauma dis um, diagnoses instead of having all of these other anxiety disorders, ODD, um, um, all of these other disorders, and then it's not really addressing the issue because ACEs, it can be individual. And yes, I agree with the multi interdisciplinary perspective. That's my experience and my professional um, work as well. So number one, your perspective, your opinion on the book. Number two, um, if you know of it, his um, proposal to um, have additional diagnoses submitted to um, the DSM-5 for the DSM-5. Thanks. 
Yes, I'm a big fan of um, Dr. Vanderkolk as well as um, Dr. Levine. Levine. Um, I think it's it's for me it was a groundbreaking book. It was one of my introductions to to trauma, um, along with um, some of the reading that I've done for Dr. Alicia Lieberman that talks about um, working with um, developmental complex developmental trauma from an intergenerational lens. And so I think anything that talks about how we keep how we how trauma and the effects of trauma are stored in the body i think it's it's groundbreaking i i think it it expands the conversation from this cognitive um symptom elimination framework that we've been um working from in psychology for a long time to a more holistic um a holistic framework and, and modality in, in terms of treating trauma and i think it's um personally as i've been trained in different uh different interventions specifically to deal with race racial trauma in the black community i think including embodied practices to help people process the way trauma has been stored in the body is um really crucial in terms of this work um in terms of what was your second part i'm sorry dr cobb just your uh, oh yes their um their attempts to include both of them um your attempt the attempts to include complex developmental trauma in the dsm i mean it's been an ongoing battle it's not only this particular doctor that's doing it there's a whole community of people that are doing it um people who are working who are um, pediatric clinical psychologists or just child psychologists were very aware of the need to include this diagnosis um and as you know it's, it's very hard to get diagnoses in a dsm it's it's somewhat political and um, it's very political, actually, um, because we're talking about money and, you know, money associated with different diagnoses. So I understand, you know, why it's, you know, taking a while for this to happen. But it is my hope that one day these efforts will be taken um, into consideration because as someone that diagnoses children, PTSD, um, having to give them PTSD or some type of anxiety disorder like you're talking about doesn't really fully capture the impact of trauma on child develop the developmental trajectory and i think this is why it's such an important push to include this diagnosis in dsm because it really speaks to the deleterious effects of trauma on development um but i you know the struggle continues to your uh answer and i look forward to learning from you in the future i appreciate you thank you Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Dr. Cobb, for answering in her, for asking that question. Do you have a follow-up question for Dr. King before we move on? Just I'll, I'll, I'll message her. I was going to say back chat. I'll message her, um, ask for the connection if that's possible. And um, I'd like to learn more about your work and if possible work on something together if that's at all feasible. And thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Cobb. Thank you. I want to welcome uh, my, my good friend from Australia, Thomas Condell. So thank you so much. Nice to see you. And and Dr. King, if you remember, he was there yesterday. Yes, <laughs> Thomas sent me a great article this morning. Hi, Thomas. How are good you, morning. Thomas? And, and is there anything you'd like to ask Dr. King or contribute to this conversation? Uh, firstly, thank you. Thank you, Jason, for uh, hosting this uh, session today tonight or this morning wherever you are in the world but um, I've really enjoyed listening I'm fully awake and uh, I'm even more fully awake now after the last uh, <laughs> hour and 15 minutes because everyone's been really interesting and uh, 
Um, yeah, look, thank you. And look, just I, I look, I've got a million questions, but I'll ask one. Um, and uh, hopefully it's a one that's it's an interesting one for Dr. King. But just before I do, I just wanted to quickly say um, to, to Laurie from Clubhouse, I really, um, you know, appreciate listening to your your question and your comments. Um, I really uh, I got a lot out of it. And I, and I think just it goes to show how how incredibly um, uh, powerful these um, these networking and in this podcast type Mm -hmm. arrangements are because you know this I'm not sure how many people are listening but um, it, it doesn't matter about the number it, it's the, the quality of the input and I just wanted to mm -hmm. acknowledge Laurie um, my question and it's only one and it's a quick one for Dr King is as follows and I've written it down just in case I get it wrong but the impact you talked briefly about the um, impact of social media and um, I found that very interesting in relation to young people um, I was just wondering, and you, and you also mentioned the family filter, I think, um, which obviously is a good, good thing, um, for young people. Um, I have a one 16 year old child, a son who's obviously all over social media. Um, and it's the same in Australia as it is, I'm sure around the world. Um, he uses things like Snapchat, TikTok, okay. um, you know, all the ones that the young people use and. I'm too old to use, I'm, I'm the big dag, but um, what's your view um, on where you think it will end up, say in the next 10 years? And I know that's a really hard question. I guess it's just a question to put out there, but I've noticed with kids and, you know, friends of my, friends of my son, they seem to be getting more and more risk risky with their what they what they portray, um, especially the yeah. girls. And I, I don't have a daughter, but you know they seem to get quite quite more daring in in what they reveal or what they don't reveal um, on videos and stuff like that. So I was just wondering if, if it's changed a lot in the last two or three years. But um, you know, what do you think we're going to be seeing, um, say, in ten years' time? Well, that is a big, I knew Thomas, you were not going to ask me a simple question. <laughs> let me, sorry, let me, sorry. let me address this. Let me address this risk taking, um, this risk taking or risk behavior that you're talking about. Um, actually, because of where teenagers are in terms of brain neurodevelopment, risk taking behavior is something that's developmentally appropriate. Um, and it has to do with um, the frontal cortex of the brain being the last part of the brain to mature. And the frontal cortex of the brain, which is right behind the forehead, is where executive functioning happens, which is like your problem, your problem solving um, skills, your planning skills, um, the ability to assess like consequences and, and um, just kind of zoom out in the future before you make a choice. These are all executive functioning skills. And because of brain development at that age, particularly, especially where your son is, um, risk-taking behaviors are occur because they have um, the emotion part of their brain and other parts of their brain are, you know, in like are being, you know, pretty developed, but the frontal cortex kind of lags a little bit behind in terms of development at that age. And so they have 
these urges to do things that are, you know, to explore and to challenge and things like that, which is developmentally appropriate. I'm sure as we, we as adults can remember, we were there, but the, the, the challenges from a parent perspective is they have these, these desires, but with a immature frontal cortex to kind of help them filter um, through some of the decision-making processes in ways that consider, you know, maybe some of the consequences of their risk. And so I'm wondering if what's happening is that we as parents just have greater access to finding out what our kids, what children are doing. And if it's just a matter of this, some of the stuff used to just happen outside of adult eyes with their peers and their diaries um, and, and more private teen settings. And so what I see is the use of social media um, because now we have young people and you know and older people on these same platforms sharing them together, that we're actually having um, greater access to yeah, sure. the teen world. And so I'm not really sure, um, and I don't have, um, I haven't really looked this up, but I'm not really sure if we're seeing an increase in risk-taking behaviors or if we're, we are seeing an increase in anxiety, depression, and suicidality. I want to be clear about that. But I'm not really sure if we're seeing a, a increase in risk-taking behaviors um, on so as a result of social media, or if it's a matter of we're just having greater access to it. For and the same thing is happening, right, with racial violence. These acts are not anything that are new. They've been happening throughout um, throughout history. But now we have people recording them on their phones, and you know, and, and that kind of thing. So the community has. Um, greater access to seeing what's going on in terms of violence. And I think something similar is happening actually with teenagers and young adults. Um, so I want to say that. Um, in terms of where we are in society, um, I, I wish I could answer that, but that's that's beyond my scope of, you know, right now. Um, I don't know, but what I do know is I hope that we have greater conversations about this, um, intergenerational conversations where we are dialoguing with young people to kind of work through some of the differences that social media um, it might be creating or contributing to between um, generations. Um, a lot of us are kind of older people kind of struggling to understand what we now have access to that is happening in these these different worlds um, that we haven't previously had access to. And I'm hopeful that through more podcasts like these, more intergenerational conversations with young people, that we can take a community approach to giving young people the support that they need in order to navigate their greater exposure via social media. Uh, um, thank you for that. Um, I, I totally agree. I think um, in both parts, the accessibility is obviously huge. And I mean, I, I just look at, you know, when I was his age, which was, which is a, a few years ago, maybe, 40 years or so ago, um, I, I probably did everything that he's doing now. It's just that it wasn't filmed. And yeah. uh, no, no one witnessed it except for two or three of my close mates or maybe 10 or 12 if it was a party. Or maybe at most, you know, a party, party of 50 people. Um, right, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm glad that I, I was born in 1963, not 2006, mm -hmm. because I think I would have got into trouble because there would have been a lot of videos out there. <laughs> but you know but, and secondly i think but what you said the second part of your answer is even more important and that's the intergenerational um 
advice Discord. or filter, filter support and and what I've and what I personally have, have tried to do is to to open up the conversation um, you know with the with the terrible teenager or whatever you like to call him and it's not he's not terrible he's just a, a normal 16 year old and he's actually just a normal say, -year -old, yeah. exactly and just say hey I acknowledge that um, you're doing stuff that I did um, but let's talk about it and let's just maybe give you a little bit of advice hey when I did this some of my friends went a bit overboard and 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 were actually well you know one one actually had an accident and and killed himself and, and I'd say that in all sincerity um, mm. because he he took he took too many risks and you know the the thing is it, it's all about risk it's all about um yeah that filter and I think um social media has opened up a lot of things, but I think, as you say, the family can still talk about stuff. You just, you know, I guess you just have to have the guts to, to, to have those conversations. So thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much for that share, Thomas, and that contribution also, what you said. Do you have a follow-up question for Dr. King before we move on to Timothy? No more questions. I asked too many questions, I've been told <laughs> in my... my uh, past so I'll, I'll leave it at that but thank you i've really enjoyed uh, enjoy your your uh, this discussion and, and dr king's words of wisdom it's a uh, pleasure my pleasure absolutely absolutely so let me actually uh you know thank timothy for your patience and you're the last person i have for q a and we would be wrapping up the show very shortly i want to be respectful of dr king's time uh do you have a quick question anything you'd like to contribute to this conversation we are having well, yes, uh, it's been an amazing uh, presentation. Thank you, Dr. King, and thank you everybody else for who's, uh, who've com contributed to the program today. Um, after my question, really, Dr. King, is uh, can we connect on LinkedIn, please? And uh, I just have a comment to share that uh, uh, I, I think that you and I could possibly write a book together based upon some of my experiences in life. Uh, just real briefly, my family, I believe, was uh, subjected firsthand to trauma-based mind control conditioning when we visited Los Angeles, California on the morning of uh, May 18th, 1974. We firsthand witnessed the the Symbionese Liberation Army shootout with the uh, with the Los Angeles County uh, Police Department and Sheriff's Departments and their SWAT teams. And uh, after that, uh, a whole bunch of things in the way of physical uh, physical and psychological abuse began to carry out in my lifetime. I was only nine years old at that time, and uh, things went from being, you know, kind of tolerable and not entirely pleasant to just being pretty much awful all the time. And I'm 57 years old now, and things are still pretty much the same. So I'll land my craft on that uh, on that point, and I'll thank you all for your contributions, and uh, uh, I'll take any responses. And if you'd like to ask any questions, I'm open. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, I'm. I'm I'm, I'm processing what you said, and that that, that um, it sounds horrific. Honestly, I, I can't even imagine. And um, yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about that that exposure. Oh, thank you. I um, you know, it's actually it's it's one of a billion things in my lifetime that I I actually I'm I'm not sad or sorry about. I'm still trying to understand all of these things and to put everything into context with where I stand right now in my life. And I, I don't want to go into detail about my uh, about my business enterprises or anything. That's not our purpose here today. But uh, 
what I experienced in my life, all of these things have actually happened for me and they've been formative and transformative. And really I've, I'm at the final stages of a, a pretty major metamorphosis in my life. And mm. rising like the Phoenix out of the ashes actually is what's happening. And, and I'm just here to, to remind people that no matter what kind of crushing experiences you've been in your life, if it didn't destroy you entirely and you're still breathing and you're stable, still able to stand on your feet for even a few seconds, you can not only recover, you can have a miraculous transformation and have, uh, have an amazing new beginning standing on your doorstep. So thank you. Absolutely. That is a great place to just end this conversation. I, I'm so glad you talked about, you know, the resilience and the ability to overcome. And it sounds like you're experiencing post-traumatic growth, and which is something that we didn't even delve into um, in today's podcast. But that is, that is, thank you for saying that. That is so well said. And kudos to you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Timothy, nice to always have you on the show. Uh, so once again, guys, you know, if you are on LinkedIn or Clubhouse, okay, whoever has spoken, do send me a connection request. I would be happy to give you credits, uh, uh, you know, for the contribution you made. And I would be uploading the recording in, in let's say, about 90 minutes from now. Stuff like that. So anyways, I, I wanted to personally thank Dr. King for uh, sparing time. Uh, today and I know it's like a very tight schedule she has so thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to be a part of this interview I would I look forward to do more shows uh, you know related to any specific topics on ACEs or anything about child psychology in general uh, on my second podcast I have another podcast called as uh, social skills for children so I've, I've been just trying to do it just to educate myself. There was a whole idea of doing another podcast. So if I do find interesting guests like Dr. King, I would try to do more. So on, on that note, Dr. King, let's wrap up the show. Do you have any final giveaways or, or not giveaways, like final thoughts, conclusion, anything you want the audience to take away from this conversation we had for the past 90 minutes? Well, first of all, Jason, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak about this topic. I think it's an important topic. I think it's um, rare to have space to have um, deep conversation about this topic in non-clinical settings. Um, I want to end by using um, referring to a Nelson Mandela quote that says, um, here uh, we can, let me see, let me see where it says. It says, um, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he says, there's no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. Um, and so I, I really think that this is an important um, conversation because historically children have been, I think, not treated as if they've been fully human, but they are. They're just small human beings. And I've, it's just been such an honor and pleasure to just hear from everyone who's attended today about the impact their childhood has had on them, because I think it really highlights um, the vulnerability um, that children have, the unique vulnerabilities that they have that we as adults don't have, and the importance of um, addressing policy and systemic change that supports families and contexts in which children are in the majority of their time, like school or maybe like um, 
spending less time in the hospital, but it's still a significant place for children and that how important it is to have these interdisciplinary conversations about ways in which we need to pivot in society to make mental health and the health in general of children a priority because these children, as you say, grow up to become um, adult citizens in different countries who impact society um, as a whole. So I'm just excited about that. And I, I love the fact that so many people chimed in and talked about, yes, I did over, I did experience some, some really hard stuff, some really dark stuff as a child, but I'm still here and I'm resilient. And I think it speaks to um, the ability of the human soul to overcome tremendous atrocities and um, really dark, dark experiences and become a functional, you know, for people to become fully functional adults. I think it speaks to the importance of community and having um, other people around us to um, to support our healing process and to have safe spaces like this in which we can talk about things that are maybe treated in our families as taboo, but are important conversations to have to um, embark upon our own healing journey. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. King. I appreciate all this wonderful share and your contribution with today's discussion. I know you have to go. So thank you so much. Uh, if you have to leave, I'm, I'm okay with you leaving. I'm going to do uh, a, the exit process of the show. So so my closing remark, guys, you know, tomorrow I, I do have another show uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm going to be discussing a specific topic called selective mutism. I don't see a lot of article about this. Uh, especially in childhood. So selective mutism is a complex childhood anxiety disorder characterized by a child's inability to speak, communicate effectively in a select social setting such as school. So uh, we would be deep diving. I have interesting questions. Uh, I have a literacy expert called Dr. Suki Stone and I also have an educational consultant, a close friend of mine, Melissa Kent, who is going to be joining uh, that conversation. Uh, I'm going to be actually broadcasting on two platforms. Actually, three, uh, two platforms. One is LinkedIn. So we would have a LinkedIn video. We would also have a YouTube video stream. And I will also have a LinkedIn audio stream. So if you're interested, just DM me. I will be happy to send you the links uh, for those shows. So thank you so much. I wanted to applaud Dr. King uh, for your contribution so far. Thank you so much for that. You guys take care of yourself. Have a lovely morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are in the world. Take care of yourself and, and have, have an amazing day. Thank you.